But with that, I have the privilege of bringing us God's Word today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me uh, to the book of Mark, chapter 5. Mark, chapter 5, we're looking at verses 1 to 20. And if you can choose your translation, uh, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. This is the reading of God's Word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out, out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Amen. Amen. Um, uh, This morning, we're continuing our series through the book of Mark. Uh, We're looking at key moments in Jesus' life and ministry that kind of force us to ask the question, who is the real Jesus? You know, who, uh, who is Jesus really? And to recap, in chapter 1, uh, you have Jesus making this grand announcement that the time uh, has been fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. And then basically everything that comes after that point is a picture of what this new kingdom looks like. It looks like healing. It looks like restoration. It looks like relationship. It's this beam of light breaking into this dark world full of violence, full of oppression, full of war. And today we find ourselves in chapter 5, which opens with Jesus arriving, it says, on the other side of the lake. And, and to give you some context, um, the story that comes right before this is the famous story of Jesus calming the storm while he's in the boat with his disciples. Um, and in that story, uh, what we see is Jesus' absolute authority over the elements, uh, we see that uh, he has the power to silence the, the, the sea and silence the wind and the waves simply with the authority of his word. And so in that sense, you know, we get to this story, and if that story was kind of like a, a story that gives us a picture of the way Jesus is Lord over the chaos out there, which in and of itself, um, you know, is 
something that I think would be very comforting for all of us to hear today, you know, to know that Jesus is Lord over the chaos out there. I mean, we're living in a world right now um, where a virus has now claimed the lives of over 4 million people around the world. Um, we're living in a world right now in a country where there are so many mass shootings in a year that uh, most of them we don't even hear about anymore. They're not even newsworthy. You know, we're living in a world that is still wrought with war and violence and bloodshed. And, 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 and so on, on one hand, it's so comforting to us to know that Jesus is Lord over the chaos out there. But now in the very next story, which is the story we're looking at today, we learn that Jesus is also Lord over the chaos in here. And I think for a lot of us, um, sometimes the chaos in here can actually be scarier than the chaos out there. It's actually a, a, a more horrible kind of chaos. And the story we're looking at today reads kind of straight up like a scene from The Walking Dead. Um, Jesus gets out of this boat, and you have this man that emerges from the tombs. Uh, he's clearly not in his right mind. Uh, he's been completely cut off from his community. He's a danger to himself and to everyone around him. And the words used to describe this man are not even words you would use to describe a human being. It says that no one had the strength to subdue him. A better translation for that is that no one had the strength to tame him. Okay, I want you to think about that. We don't tame human beings. We tame wild animals. Okay, so this is the guy that's been treated like a wild animal and in doing so has essentially become a wild animal. Right? It's, that, it's the way that saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. Right? Sometimes you hear something enough in life, you actually become the thing you've heard. You know, sometimes we allow other people, our communities, our, our parents to define us, and oftentimes they become kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in our lives, and that's what's happened to this guy. And so here's a guy that's like a wild animal rushing Jesus. I mean, if I'm Jesus, I'm getting right back in the boat. You know, I'm like, I could, I could heal a lot of other people. I, I don't need to be here. Um, but Jesus just stays there, and he's unfazed. And it's because for Jesus, it's not an accident that he's here. And we know it's not an accident because if you read this whole story through, Jesus gets out of the boat, he heals the man, and then he gets right back in the boat. Meaning, he's here for this very encounter. This is why he's here. You know, he doesn't come for something else and by chance he runs into this man. No, this is why he came. And if you didn't know by now, Jesus is always moving towards the people nobody wants to get near. Jesus is always going to the places no one is willing to go. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus, the story of Jesus moving toward the leper. Last week, we looked at Jesus meeting with the tax collectors and the sinners, these people that had been written off as the criminals and the unclean in society. And here in, cha in chapter 5, he purposely goes to a region no Jewish person in the right mind would ever enter. We read that they're in Gerasene country, so uh, we're talking about deep into Gentile territory. Jesus is near the tombs, and he's near pigs, okay? He is a Jewish rabbi, so this is as unclean of a scene as you can get uh, for an early Jewish reader. According to uh, Jewish law, anyone who came into contact with dead people or came into contact with tomb was automatically marked as unclean. They were forced to live outside the camp. And then, I mean, and then you have just these pigs hanging out in the story, uh, which doesn't make sense, and we'll get, we'll get to that later. Um, so from the perspective of a first century Jew, 
Jesus here is interacting with an unclean man, possessed by an unclean spirit, um, in an unclean place, surrounded by unclean animals. And yet this is where Jesus wants to go. This is who Jesus is. Everyone else in the world is always trying to move away from the unclean. You know, here in L.A., think about it. You know, when people come to L.A., you know what? One of the first questions they ask when they're looking for a place to live is, where are all the homeless people at? Why do people ask that question? Because they want to get away from them. Right? We tell our kids, you know, um, stay away. Don't make eye contact with them. We want to protect our families. And so we want to know where the homeless people are hanging out so that we can constantly move away from them. In some sense, we treat people like the homeless just like this man has been treated by his society. We do everything we can to keep them as far away from us as possible, and we relegate them to our version of the tombs, i.e. skid row. Or oftentimes people go, they live, and they die, and nobody knows their name. You know, a pastor in L.A. that I respect greatly, his name is Kevin Ha, and um, the way that his ministry began was um, all he started doing was he started going to Skid Row and he would just hold funeral services uh, for residents of Skid Row who had passed. Because he realized, he looked around and he said, there's something wrong in the world when 10 miles from where most of us live, there's literally this alternate universe, this alternate reality where people live in a certain way, where only people who are like each other can be together, and then they die and no one knows their name. And it was his way of saying, these people are created in the image of God. These people deserve some dignity. We don't know where their friends are. We don't know where their families are. But at the very least, we're going to say their name. And yet this isn't the way we treat people like this. We label them as belligerent and dangerous. We tell each other, stay away from them. We blame their problems on their poor life choices. We justify uh, our kind of turning a blind eye to them. What do we say? We say things like, ah, I don't want to enable their addiction. I'm doing this for them. And some of that may be true, but my guess is that if we were to really examine our own hearts this morning, we're really doing it for ourselves. It's an opportunity for us to wash our hands clean and say, that's not my problem, that's their problem. It's an opportunity for us to condone and make, us, make ourselves feel better about our indifference. You see, it's our natural human instinct to distance ourselves from the people and the places we deem unclean. Jesus is always moving toward the unclean. He's, like, he's drawn to them like a moth to a flame. Now, now, this story is probably the most vivid account of an exorcism we have in Scripture. Now, I don't know how many people in this room believe in real demons. Uh, I do, and uh, we can share stories about that later. I got some crazy stories for you, but um, in case you're new to the faith, I'm not going to share those stories right now. That's maybe like, you know, that's date number four or five. Uh, but um, whether or not you believe they're real, um, I would say that it's especially hard after a year like 2020 um, to acknowledge that there's, there's something in the world that we just can't explain with our human minds. At the very least, 
you know, for all of our genius, for all of our knowledge, for all of our expertise and technological progress, we still haven't figured out a way to stop people from killing each other. We still haven't figured out a way to live peacefully with our neighbors, people who are different from us. Honestly, we still haven't found a way to clean babies' bottles, okay? For those of you who are new parents, that is demonic oppression, okay? Like these, um, it, for those of you who are new parents, you know this. Um, there are these bottles called Dr. Brown's, okay? And, um, you know, everyone in the front getting baptized knows they have like five million pieces in them. Okay, and, and in order to clean them, you basically have to take every little piece out and you have to clean. My wife has been trying to develop an invention for Shark, for shark Tank for years, and uh, I mean, she can't do it. And I mean, you know, talk about like two parents who are tired, hungry, uh, irritable, trying to clean those bottles. That is demonic oppression in the flesh, okay? But um, in all seriousness, you know, I think we can all agree here that there are supernatural forces that we just can't explain. Things that are outside of our control, things that don't seem to make sense. And though on the outside, I know it's easy to read over a scene like this in Mark 5 and to feel like this is just out of a horror movie, this isn't real life, you know, this feels like mythology. I would venture to guess that if I were to really ask you, Though we may not look like the demoniac in Mark 5 on the outside, my guess is that this is spot on for how many of us feel on the inside. I mean, think about the language Mark uses. He says, bound with shackles and chains, night and day crying out, cutting himself with stones. This is us. If you know, or if you yourself, or you know anyone in your life who's struggled with deep depression or suicidal ideation, this probably hits so close to home. This was written how many thousands of years ago, and it still connects to us deeply. I mean, think about how we talk about those who've tragically taken their own lives. We use the language of, they gave in to their own demons. They couldn't overcome their own demons you see, demonic oppression doesn't always look like ghosts and zombies and things flying through the air. Honestly, demonic oppression looks like America in 2021. It looks like institutional oppression. It looks like systemic racism. It looks like spiritual and sexual abuse that goes unchecked. In this man, we see the personification of the human condition. We see the full physical, spiritual, emotional manifestation of what happens when men and women are left to their own vices. When we start to decide what is right and wrong, when we, de when we define good and evil, when we declare autonomy outside of God, he's a living manifestation of everything that is broken about our world. This man's life is a picture of the way we dehumanize and brutalize people created in God's image. It's a picture of the pain we inflict on ourselves and on others. It's evil in the flesh. One scholar put it like this. He said, this man is a microcosm of the whole of creation, inarticulately groaning for redemption, condemned to live out his days alone amid the decaying bones of the dead with no one who loves him and no one to love. And though you and I in this room do a much better job of hiding it than this man does, we hide it with our nice clothes, with our well-kept homes, with our packed schedules. At the end of the day, we're just as beaten, battered, and bruised as this man on the inside. At the end of the day, 
how many of us are just like this man. No matter what we put out on our social media, no matter what kind of image of ourselves we project, no matter how, how many people think we have our lives all put together, how many of us are just like this man, tormented, anxious, desperate, crying out day and night, looking for some semblance of relief. You know what I think is really interesting about this story? Is that the man in Mark 5 is not presented to us as being weak. He's actually presented to us as being very powerful and strong. It says nothing could bind him. It said no shackles and chains could hold him down, meaning you can be strong and powerful on the outside and yet still be utterly alone and enslaved on the inside. Let me ask you a question. Is Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world? Is he free? Is he free? This is someone who has pretty much reached the pinnacle of the human game. He's more power, he's more money, more influence than all of us in this room combined. Is he free? Now, obviously, you know, I can't presume to know the state of Jeff Bezos' soul, and I'm not going to try to do that. But the thing is, my guess is that we can't answer that question definitively, can we? For all the money and power and influence he has, there's something in us that, that wonders, I wonder if he's not free. Because there's something in us that knows that you can have a lot of things and still be completely empty on the inside. You can have everything and yet have nothing. How many of us are workaholics because we want a certain quality of life? We want to be viewed a certain way. We want to be powerful and comfortable. We want nice things. We want to not have to depend on our families. But let me ask you, how is that working out for us? What do our relationships look like? What does the state of our soul look like? The man in Mark 5 has reached a level of power and strength that is utterly superhuman. But you know what? He's nowhere near free. He's not free. And this guy falls down at Jesus' feet. And at this point, I mean, you don't really know who's talking, if it's the man or the demon, because they're pretty much one and the same. And those of you who have ever struggled with depression, something that I hear all the time is, you know, honestly, this has become such a part of who I am. This has defined me so much that sometimes I don't know who's talking, myself or the depression. I don't know who's talking, myself or the anger. They're kind of one and the same. And I think Mark intentionally kind of blurs those lines. And this man falls... And the first thing he cries out is, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This man has been so abused that he just assumes that Jesus is there to abuse him too. I want you to think about that. You know, I used to, um, before I went into ministry, um, I used to work as a speech and music therapist for children with PTSD and bipolar disorder. And one of the girls I used to work with, um, she, had, she came from a history of family abuse. Uh, she went through the foster system. Um, and every time I raised my hand to give her a high five, she would always do this. And it was like an instantaneous reflex. Because when you've been abused your entire life, when you've been hurt your entire life, that's all you think. That's all you can expect. And this is what we see in this man. He's been so dehumanized. At the moment he sees Jesus, he falls on his feet and he says, please do not torment me. 
Now, one thing I do want to point out that I think is very interesting is that this guy who supposedly could not be restrained is now on his knees begging for mercy in Jesus' presence. Whatever demonic power there was is now trembling in the presence of Jesus. I don't want to kind of gloss over that. You know, I think sometimes those of us who maybe struggle with anger, those of us who struggle with anxiety, struggle with depression, I think a lot of times at some point we just assume this is the way it is. This is a lost cause. This is how, what I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And yet if we learn anything from this story, it's that there is nothing that is hopeless in Jesus' presence. And I think oftentimes, even as Christians, our first kind of line of defense is medication, is therapy, is getting help from the outside. And, and trust me, I, I believe in all of these things. I think they're so important, and I think they're so necessary. But I think oftentimes Jesus is the last resort. Prayer is the place we go to after we've exhausted all options and we have nothing left. And if this story shows us anything, it's that there's nothing that has plagued this man for years that is a match for the ultimate power and authority of Jesus in this moment. Now, moving on, what happens next is, is super strange. You know, the, like you have to, with, with the Bible, you really have to get into the story to kind of realize how strange some of these stories are. The demons in Jesus, they start having a conversation, okay? And, and Jesus asks, what's your name? It's a strange question to ask. Like, why are you asking, just kill it, Jesus? Just kill it, right? But he's like, what's your name? You know, why are you having, a, like, why are you having coffee with this demon? And, and, and he says, he answers, legion, for we are many. And, and just so you know, legion isn't actually a name, it's a, it's a number. And it's a number that was used uh, to, to describe the number, uh, it was like a Roman military unit that described about 6,000 foot soldiers, okay? So we're talking about a multitude of demons in this man. And the fact that he chooses to describe himself with military language should tell you a lot about the kingdom that this demon represents. It's a kingdom of war. It's a kingdom of violence. It's a kingdom of bloodshed. But again, Jesus is bringing a completely different kind of kingdom. He's ushering in a kingdom of healing and restoration and peace. And then what comes next is is probably the craziest part of the story. The demons are like, please don't send us away. Send us into those pigs over there. And then Jesus gives them permission, and then all of a sudden you see these pigs, 2,000 pigs, run off the cliff, and it says they drowned in the sea. And it just kind of moves on. Okay? Um, that is weird, right? I mean, that, like, that, should, that should make you be like, why, why is that even in the story? Uh, most pastors don't even like to mention that part because they don't want to get flagged by PETA because it's like, what did, the, what did the poor pigs do? You know, they didn't do anything. Like, the, you know, they had these demons thrown into them and they go over the cliff and they drown in the sea. And you have to understand that in those times, this isn't just an ethical dilemma. This is a financial catastrophe. 2,000 pigs was like a person's entire life savings. It was like complete like a, a, an economic disaster. And the fact that Mark just kind of brushes over this and moves on should tell us a lot. I believe Mark is making a point that for Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than all the money and all the capital assets in the world. He wants to show us that you can't put a price on a human soul. But you see, this is why the locals are so pissed. 
This is why they want Jesus gone. They're just like all of us. It's so indicative of the human condition. They care more about the pigs than the fact that this man, who just a moment ago was like a wild animal, is restored, changed, transformed. All they care about in that moment are the pigs. It's a community that loves things and uses people instead of uses things and love people. For how many of us is that a huge rebuke? How many CEOs in this room would let their entire company tank if it meant you could save the soul of one person in your company? How many churches would empty their entire budget if it meant one person in the church could have a new life? I don't know if I would. How many leaders would put their reputation and their name on the line for one person on their staff? Nobody would do that. And we know people don't do that because of all the scandals that are coming out these days of organizations who are willing to silence victims, organizations who are willing to put victims on the back burner. Why? To protect their brand. Nobody does this in our world because it's reckless, it's unthinkable, but not in Jesus' kingdom, not in Jesus' economy, because this is who Jesus is. You know, what I think is so interesting to me um, is that in both this story and the story before this, the story of Jesus calming the storm, both the disciples in that story and the townspeople in this story, their first response after Jesus does these miraculous things isn't celebration. You would think, right, that, you know, if you just saw an insane miracle, that the first thing you would do is celebrate. No, it says their first response is fear. Here it says the disciples, when they, uh, here it says the townspeople, when they see this man, who just a second ago was a danger to himself and to everyone around him, sitting there calm, clothed, and in, and in right mind, it says they were afraid. And this should be a gut check for every single one of us in this room who say we want to follow Jesus, who say we want to see miracles, who say we want to see change in our lives and in the lives of our loved ones, but not realizing that these miracles come with costs. And I think many of us in this room know what those costs are, and we don't want to pay. We say we want healing in our lives, but maybe that means we have to give up some destructive habits that are harming us. We say we want peace, but maybe that means we have to swallow our pride and ask someone for forgiveness, right? We say we want peace, right? Um, you know, we say, we say we don't want to be enslaved by money or things, but maybe that means we have to make some difficult choices. We want Jesus insofar as he doesn't interfere with our pigs. We want Jesus insofar as he doesn't interfere with our comfort and our convenience and our way of life. And so what do we do? We say, I don't think I can do it. Jesus, you can go away because I don't want to see what you're going to do with my pigs. And I think sometimes we get so accustomed to the demons in our lives that we actually are afraid to live life without them. You know, I, I meet a lot of people who tell me they can't stop themselves from sabotaging every relationship they're in. Or they go into the workplaces and they const they're like sabotaging themselves. Because at the end of the day, they don't want to be the first person to get hurt. Because they're so used to being hurt, they're so used to being defined by, by some of these things that have happened to them that 
in some sense, they don't want to live life without these demons, so it's easier for them to sabotage those relationships. It's easier for them to isolate themselves for others and actively oppose the thought that someone might actually love us for who we are. And yet Jesus doesn't allow the man to stay where he is. He heals him. And at the end of the story, the man asks Jesus if he can go with him. And interestingly enough, Jesus says no. Like, this is weird because if you've been following, us along, following along with us in Mark, usually Jesus heals someone and he warns them, don't tell anyone about it. Keep it a secret. But here, he says, I actually want you to go tell your friends. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Now, you have to ask yourself, why would Jesus who has just been banished by this community, then tell a man to go back into this community and proclaim the good news of what has happened to him. Like, that doesn't make sense. And yet I feel like it could be telling us something important about who Jesus is, that even when we fail, even when we choose our comfort over him, even when we choose our own selfish desires over him, even when we run from him or try to banish him from our lives, Jesus' presence never leaves us. This is the grace of God. You would think once Jesus was banished and he's getting out of the boat, he says, you know what? Fend for yourselves. But no, he's getting into the boat and he says, go tell your friends everything I've done. This is the heart of Jesus. There's no expiration date for his love. You know, some of us in here have been fighting our own demons for as long as we can remember, and in the process, we've hurt the people we love, and we've hurt ourselves. And we don't know, if we're honest, if God even wants us. And let this story be a reminder that he does. That his invitation for you to experience the joy, forgiveness, and shalom that only he can give is available always for you. And it's available for you because Jesus didn't just sacrifice a few thousand pigs for your sake. He sacrificed his own life. If the demoniac was evil in the flesh, the Bible says Jesus was the word of God made flesh who came to dwell among the unclean, who saw us in our brokenness, who saw us inflicting pain on each other and ourselves, and rather than cast all of, all of the worst of humanity on us, he himself became the swine. He took all of our sin, he took all of our shame, all of our failure upon his own shoulders and was cast into the pit of hell in order to calm the storm within each and every one of us. This may be hard for some of us to believe, I get it. Maybe our first thought is the same thought of the demoniac in Mark 5. We're like, Jesus, what do you want with me? Don't torment me when in fact... Jesus wants more than anything for you to experience peace and fulfillment and deep joy. This is what we're longing for, and this is what Jesus has made available to us through his death and resurrection. Now, I want to speak to two different groups, and then we'll close today. For those of you who feel like the demoniac this morning, maybe you don't look like him on the outside, but on the inside, you're exactly like him. You feel this inner turmoil that you can't seem to shake. You're constantly tossed to and fro. There's this constant anxiety, this constant, like, wondering if this is all there is, this constant panic. Let me ask you, what are you afraid to lose by following Jesus? Are you afraid to lose your independence, your pride, 
your way of life? Because in the story, there was nothing that could hold the demoniac down, and yet he was enslaved and alone. Bring your fears to Jesus and lay it at his feet. Now, for those of you who know someone in your life or regularly interact with people who have been rejected and abandoned by their communities, who have been labeled as a lost cause or a danger to you or your family or to society, what does it look like for you to become the embodiment of Jesus' kingdom in their life? to become the embodiment of healing, compassion, and forgiveness. You know, in the same way that the demon and the man kind of become one and you don't know who's who, the Bible says that when we place our faith in Jesus, we become united with him. Galatians 3.27 says, those who have placed their faith uh, baptized with Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. This means that where you go, Christ goes with you. And this morning, I guarantee you, there is someone in your life that you have the opportunity to be the love of Christ to. We have the opportunity to embody Jesus to our hurting family members, to the marginalized in our communities, to be vessels of reconciliation in a world full of oppression and injustice. What does that look like for you today? What does that look like for you to lay down your comfort and your pride and your reputation for someone else at great cost to yourself? Because to do so would be the only fitting response for what Christ has done for us. Philippians 2 says, Christ did not see equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. He emptied himself of everything that was rightfully his, why? So you and I might be restored and made whole. And now we can be that for those around us. This is the good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, um, underneath the facade of uh, our outward appearance underneath the facade of uh, what we project um, to the world around us through social media. Um, Lord, we know that many of us feel just like this demoniac in Mark 5. We feel tormented. We feel like there's a raging fire in our souls, and we're just looking for some comfort. We're just looking for some relief. And I pray this morning that we would see you with your arms wide open, welcoming us, inviting us into a life of peace, joy, and deep satisfaction. It's what all of us so desperately long for. And so God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters in this room, whether we ourselves um, have felt dehumanized, or we ourselves uh, have felt overlooked or discarded, or we know or interact with people in our lives who have been discarded or rejected. God, would your kingdom come in LA as it is in heaven, in our homes as it is in heaven, in our relationships as it, in, as it is in heaven. 
would we be embodiments of the good news? Would we be embodiments of everything that you are? Would we intentionally go to the places that others have deemed unclean? And ultimately, would we reflect the love of Christ that all of us have received? We thank you for your grace and mercy this morning. We lift this time up to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.